Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. episode is airing on Tuesday, May 12th, 2020. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Book Bistro. I'm Shannon, and I'm here with a couple of really great things today. Um, first up, I have an interview that I was fortunate enough to do with author Elma Kotsu, and this was a lot of fun. She is a remarkable woman. I cannot wait for you to hear some of what we talked about. And after that, of course, I have a guide to the week's new releases. It's a little bit shorter than it sometimes is, but there are still some great things to look forward to this week. So let's get on to the housekeeping information, and then we'll go directly into the interview. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro podcast. This is Shannon, and I am here today with author Alma Katsu, whose latest novel, The Deep, was released in the U.S. on March 10th. Alma, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. You are very welcome. So can we start out? Um, with you giving listeners a little bit of an introduction to The Deep? Sure. So if you've seen anything on it at all, you've probably read that it's a reimagining of the sinking of the Titanic and its sister ship, the Britannic, with a little horror twist. The main story is about a young Irish woman named Annie Hebley, who kind of runs away from home under mysterious circumstances to get a job as a stewardess in the Titanic. And once she's there, you know, it really opens up her world and she meets all of the famous people that we've all heard about who are on the Titanic. But in particular, she finds that she's drawn to this young man, uh, Mark um, Fletcher, who has this infant daughter, Ondine. And once they sort of start coming together, all of these strange otherworldly happenings start taking place on the ship. But before they can find out what's actually going on, you know, it's the night that we've all heard about, the terrible sinking of the Titanic, and they're lost to each other. And you'd think the story ends there, but it doesn't. Four years later, Annie has gotten a job as a nurse on the Britannic which is the last ship of the line, and it was converted to be a hospital ship to transport wounded troops back to England um, during World War One. 
And while she's on her first voyage with the Britannic, they bring a, a wounded soldier aboard. And who is it but Mark Fletcher, whom she thought had died when the Titanic went down four years earlier. And they're reunited. But no sooner does that happen when all of the mysterious happenings start up again and Annie is forced to confront that she may have had a role in the sinking of the first ship and the the you know the thing that's about to befall the second ship. Ooh. So it's interesting that your book features a hospital ship because I actually did not know that there had ever been such a thing until recently with everything with COVID-19. And there was a big thing on the news about hospital ships. And I remember saying um, to a friend of mine, you know, I could see them like doing that, you know, back like when there was a war, but I, I never knew that they did it now. And, you know, learning about the Britannic was really the spark that gave me the idea for the book. But and it's really interesting. It wasn't just the Britannic at that time because people were canceling, you know, their their travel, fearing that the ships would be under attack by the Germans, um, that the the ocean liners, you know, had reduced need for service. And so the government asked uh, both the Cunard Line and the White Star Line to convert you know, these massive ocean liners into hospital ships. So they weren't really designed at the time for, you know, um, actually doing medical um, treatments, although they were completely outfitted. They had an operating surgery and all that sort of thing, but really designed just to bring back, um, you know, the wounded from the war zone. And if you know World War One, and I am by no stretch an expert on World War One, but I think we've all heard just, you know, what a terribly destructive and devastating yes. uh, war that was. And, you know, the ship could hold over 3,000 patients and it ended up making six. Uh, it was on its sixth voyage when it was sunk. That's that's unbelievable. And a thing that we don't ever really learn about. You know, we all know about the Titanic. I've known about it since I, I can't even remember when I first heard about it. I was really young. Um, but you never hear about any other ships um, in that line. Like, it's just not part of our cultural lexicon. And, you know, that's the, been one of the fascinating things of writing these particular kinds of books. You know, the first one was, in this particular vein that I wrote, was The Hunger, my last book. Yes. About the Donner Party. And like a lot of Americans, I thought I knew all about the Donner Party. You know, you hear about it in school, but it wasn't until I actually started digging into it that I realized I didn't know the real story at all. And that really kind of opened my eyes. How much do we really not know about these events that, that we think we know? So what made you decide that you wanted to kind of reimagine these events and infuse them with bits of the supernatural? Well, partly it, it might be just because, you know, I'm just kind of, I lean that way. I grew up, um, I was raised a Roman Catholic, which is a very superstitious religion. It's you know, true. It's true. You're hanging out in these churches that are just so, you know, mysterious and, and, and strange in a lot of ways, you know, with its dark hidden nooks and all that. But I also grew up in a really, really spooky little town in New England. Super, super spooky. And it just, and a spooky, spooky little house that we were convinced were ha was haunted. So it kind of predisposed me for looking for the mysterious and the unexplainable probably in life. 
But for the Donner Party, it's one of those things that, you know, like a lot of people, I'd always been a little fascinated by it, fascinated, you know, as a complete outsider, like someone who really didn't know what I thought I knew about it. And so once I started researching that and I saw that, you know, the craziness really started from the beginning, even before the beginning, when right. they, you know, what happens, what drove these people to want to make this incredible journey. And then once you see that, you realize, oh, my gosh, there's a story there. And it was the same thing with the Titanic. You know, like I've said, I'm not a Titanic fan. I didn't grow up like, you know, really being fascinated by it. But my husband was watching a documentary one day and I happened to walk through the room at the time when they mentioned that the dive was to the Britannic, the sister ship. And that was fascinating. I sat down to watch it with them. And then the next thing they said was that there was a woman who had survived both sinkings. And even without knowing that woman's story, I knew there would be, you know, you yes. can make a really interesting story around it. So when you sit down to write these books, do you kind of have a basic idea of like the characters that you want to keep from history and those that you want to fictionalize or does all that kind of evolve for you as you get to know the particular story that you're telling? Well, with these stories, because they're not like true um, right. like reproductions of history, which, um, you know, I tell people his historical fiction is a big tent, right? You know, you yes. have all the way from barely fictionalized accounts of real events to things like mine or even beyond that, where you can call them alternative histories. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't go quite that far with these. They're more in the magical realism camp. So, you know, I'm trying to bring, um, you know, this question of, you know, could this, you know, supernatural or extraordinary thing have happened to an event that we know. But um, generally, they're about something else. So the, the central question with the Donner Party, for instance, was, you know, what under what circumstances does a man become a monster? You know, what would it take for to make somebody do something that they normally maybe wouldn't do? something terrible. Now, I'm not saying that cannibalism is necessarily terrible. We could go into that, the historical reasons for cannibalism. But but that was sort of the kickoff. And once you understand that the circumstances these people were thrust into was just so extraordinary, you know, you it just makes for an interesting story. And with the, um, the deep, it was more, I was taking a look at the, um, what were some of the big themes of the day? And they were themes that are very, you know, they resonate with us today. One had to do with women's rights. Yes. And we only have to look at the events in the last couple of years here in America to see that maybe things hadn't advanced as much as we thought they had. So that's an issue that I think are on the minds of a lot of readers. And the second one has to do with income and class disparity, which, ah, yes. yeah. So that was the era that gave us the term robber baron, for instance. Mm -hmm. And all we have to do is look around today and see, you know, there's this ever widening gap between the haves and the have nots. The haves are getting so much richer. The have nots are getting, not only getting poorer, but the field is growing, you know, to make us ask, is there something from the past we can learn from that could help help us understand what we're going through today. So are there members of your cast of characters who are loosely based on actual people then? So it's for the deep, it's sort of split for the hunger. It was almost a hundred percent real people. Okay. Um, especially among what I call the ensemble cast. I usually do a handful of point of view characters 
Yes. So, so it switches around the point of view. And um, I kind of learned in doing the hunger that that it made me a little uncomfortable. It makes some readers a little uncomfortable when you're trying to project something that's very different from what that person actually experienced. So in the deep, it's more half and half. Half of the main characters are completely fictional. So the uh, woman that I had mentioned who survived both sinkings, her name is Violet Jessup. And she was the model for the main character, Annie Hebley. Violet okay. doesn't appear in the book. She's Annie's friend. But I use the circumstances of Violet's life to sort of be the skeleton that I hang Annie Hebley's story on. Because I just felt that some of the things that are demanded of Annie in the story were unfair to, mm -hmm. to just, you know, thrust onto uh, somebody who would actually live. Mm -hmm. So there's um, some of the rich and famous are in the book because, you know, if you're going to tell a story about class disparity, you can't leave out the asters. For no, there have to be asters there. Um, that, that would not, it would be hard to kind of buy into like a Titanic where they were not. And, yeah. And the situation they were in. So that's part of it. You know, before I begin a book, I try to read um, little thumbnail biographies, at least of, um, of the people who were involved. So with the Donner Party, that was like 100 people for the Titanic. That was twenty three hundred people. Wow. And you go through and you try to look for the ones that are going to fit into the story that you're envisioning. Um, but sometimes, you know, their lives are just so interesting or it offers a twist that you hadn't considered before. So um, that's what I did. Yeah, 2,300 little bios. And it was fascinating. And there's so many people on that ship that had led just such interesting lives. And I'm kind of sad I couldn't get more of them in there. But, but that's a problem, too, as a writer. You know, if you introduce too many characters, it can be very confusing for some readers. So, you know, you kind of have to balance it. Right. You know, I'm all for um, large casts of characters. Um, I get a little bit bogged down if the point of view is switching all the time. So I can definitely see that that, you know, could be a tricky thing, especially if you're trying to tell a very complicated story in a very complicated way. It is very challenging. And it's something that I've kind of done in all my books. I have five novels. The first three are very different from my most recent two, even though there's aspects of um, history in them and, there's aspects of the supernatural and those were more, it's the jumping in, out, in and out of time and play. Mm -hmm. It's not, um, it's not a time travel book, but it has to do with some, some immortal characters. Right. I was looking at the synopsis for, um, I think it's called the taking. The taking. When, um, just before I um, got on the phone with you today, I wanted to just kind of look at the stuff of yours that I hadn't read because I've read the deep and I've read the hunger um, but those were the two that I was familiar with. And I didn't realize that you had a trilogy as well. Yeah. So I was very excited to see that. <laughs> well, it's very different. I'll warn readers up front. Um, you know, all books are kind of of their time. And, and the book of that time was Twilight. Not that I was trying to write a Twilight book, but, you know, a lot of writers, you, you end up sort of writing in a similar vein. And yes. so, you know, those books are definitely adult and they're very dark, but it has that sort of, you know, it has like a, that sort of supernatural or paranormal element. And it's a great big epic love story. But the challenge you were referring to in terms of not confusing the reader, you know, so between the trilogy and the last two books, they're similar in that, you know, you always want the reader to know where they're at. You want them to be grounded in time and space. And even, you know, changing up 
uh, point of view characters can be a problem. So that's a real challenge for writers. So have you always known that you wanted to write or is this something that you kind of came to by accident? What was your journey like um, to getting your first book published? Well, probably not too different from a lot of writers, although it ended up kind of different because I didn't sell my first book until I was 50 years old. Oh, yeah. Ancient in writing. <laughs> but um, like a lot of writers, you know, I was a reader when I grew up, like little introverted kid, didn't have a lot of friends, spent all my time with my nose and books. And when you read a lot, um, at some point it crosses your mind, maybe I want to try to write a story. So I grew up thinking that I wanted to be a novelist, but not really knowing what that meant or how to do it. it you know, again, I'm an older person. So we didn't live in public quite as much as we do today. And so there weren't a lot of examples. How does one become a novelist? So I went towards the thing that I could see in terms of how could you make a living writing, and that was reporting. So I started out in newspapers, and then I got the opportunity to go work for the government, and I thought I'd do it just just for change of pace. And I ended up having a whole career there. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. But um, I came back to writing at 40 and took about 10 years to get the manuscript for that first book in a place where it was saleable. That's not to say I didn't um, submit to agents before it was ready. I did. Everybody mm -hmm. does. You learn a lot through that experience. But it took about 10 years and um, I was very lucky the book sold and I'm very lucky to still have contracts ever since. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So can you tell us anything about what might be coming next from you? So I'm again, very lucky. Uh, we're about to sign a contract for the next historical horror novel Ooh. and that will be coming out in two years. It, this one is set. Two um, years. Yes. Ah. Because of the other good news I have, which is I oh. like a second series. Um, so the career I had in government was in intelligence, yeah. and I actually sold a spy novel. Yay! Wow. I know. It's that crazy. is very cool. It's. I'm really happy about it. I tried for a long time to try to write a, a good spy novel, and I couldn't. I mean, it's harder, I think, to write about things you really know than than people let on. <laughs> So, um, you know, I tried and I stopped and I was doing these these, um, you know, more supernatural and historic books. But I, uh, you know, got to talking to my editor at Putnam about a plot that I had in mind and it was exactly what she was looking for. So we worked on sort of developing the plot together and I'm very pleased with it next year. So amazing. Yeah, for the foreseeable future, we're hoping like a spy book one year, historical horror the next kind of thing. And it's called Red Widow. It should be out in spring of 2021. I am super excited for it. I do think it's a, a good spy novel, super, super twisty. And it mm -hmm. has kind of the, you know, homeland, the Americans, kind of a little bit of insights into the personal or the domestic lives of the people who were involved, not just that espionage part. Excellent. Excellent. I read a lot of like mysteries and thrillers. I just read a World War II spy novel. Um, like a kind of a spy novel, I guess more of a like action thriller with a little bit of spying. It was um, Three Hours in Paris by Cara Black, Whoa. which I really liked. So I will definitely be keeping an eye out for your 2021 release. 
Oh, thank you. Although it's not historical, it is it's contemporary, just so people know. Oh, contemporary spying. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I think that's kind of interesting because you don't see a lot of that. Like there are people who write, you know, whole series of it, but I don't necessarily see a lot of like new things, you know, the first book in a new series that's set contemporary and that does a lot of the the spying and the espionage. So that is very excellent. Thank you. So you then will kind of be alternating, like you said. Um, are you thinking of writing the spy stuff as a series then, did you say? Or are you just kind of seeing how it goes? Well, I guess my publisher's probably seeing how it goes. Um, okay. The hope is, I think, that it'll be a series. Um, you know, so this kind of gets over to the business side of things. Right. You know, publishers definitely like series because, you know, you want the readers you want to develop your readership. You want them to want to follow your books. And probably the easiest way for readers to really start to embrace a book is if there are recurring characters. You know, you start to care about the characters and you want to see what happens to them, just like with television. So I am hoping that it, that it will be a series. But, you know, once you start doing that as a creative person, it never fails. You just start having all these ideas for standalone books. <laughs> So do you have kind of a, a preference for writing standalone versus series? I know some people really, you know, love a series book. Some people are just kind of like, oh, you know, I would write a series maybe, but standalones are really where my heart is. Um, do you have a preference that way? I, You know, I think I'm hardwired to like standalones. Um, my first book, The Taker, was was originally envisioned as a standalone and it was already turned in and we were kind of going down the production process when I mentioned to my editor that I could see a way to turn it into a trilogy. And of course, then trilogies were super hot. So ah, yes. said, okay, let's do it. And I have to say by the end of it, I really missed the characters by that time, oh. you know, you, mm -hmm. you, three books, you're so close. You just drug them through hell and high water. You know, you kind of miss, miss them, but also miss the security of writing about somebody you know so well. So I read both The Hunger and The Deep as audiobooks, and I was especially pleased with your narrator um, for The Deep. And so I'm wondering if you had um, any input into who they got to narrate, or did you kind of step back? and let the publishers um, do all their audiobook magic? Well, you know, I expected to just sit back and let the publishers do their magic. But the producer of this book was somewhat interactive. I mean, they, it's a different business, and they know their business, and I'm inclined to just trust them. But she did send me, um, she had like five different narrators that she was choosing between. And so she sent me little clips for each of them so I could give her input. And then once uh, a decision was made there, then there was a lot of questions about like the accents. How yes. much emphasis, em emphasis sorry, do you want on, because we have American characters and Irish and working class British and posh British. And, you know, I don't understand the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, you know, all of the nuances there, but she's British and she did. So, you know, it was very nice of her to ask, but, you know, I ended up sort of deferring to her knowledge, her superior knowledge in, in most cases. I did hear um, an excerpt of the beginning of The Deep, and I agree, that narrator did a great job. 
Yes, she is amazing. Um, the whole book is just so, so well done. A lot of times, you know, they're getting like different narrators for the different point of view characters. Yeah. And I, I like that sometimes, but I thought she did such a good job of portraying everyone. We did um, talk about just amazing. That. Yeah. We talked about whether or not to do different characters, but at the end of the day, we thought, you know, a, a good narrator could do that. I don't know if you listened to the audio book of Lincoln in the Bardo. No. Oh, that if you're going to listen to one audio book, that's the audio book to listen to. I understand they use something like 92 different actors. Yeah, I looked at the um, at the cast list for that. And I was just like, there, there's no way I, you know, as someone who has done audiobooks all of my life, um, from the time I was really little, I kind of come to the whole idea of audiobooks a little bit differently. Like I don't necessarily want always that full cast experience. I find it really distracting. Um, so I really like a talented, like single narrator or a small group of narrators. And so honestly, the, the huge amount of people in Lincoln and the Bardo um, sort of put me off a little bit. Oh, that's too bad. I mean, maybe it's, I don't know if you had a chance to sample it. I mean, it really is more like a performance. It's like uh -huh. a little play. And because there's such a huge cast in it, you know, it's all these dead bodies that are right. in the cemetery jumping in and out that it really helped, I think, for me to keep track of actually what character. And, you know, another book that did it well, but it used this one narrator was for uh, Hilary Mantel's uh, Bring Up the Bodies. Oh, I love Hilary Mantel. She's yeah. so, so good. Yeah, that audiobook narrator, the version I listened to, because, you know, it's all, almost all the characters in the book are men. Yes. <laughs> and so without the, you know, I mean, she has taglines, so you know who's talking. But he did the voices so differently that you didn't even need the taglines. Like you could, you knew who was talking because, yeah, he just characterized each character so well. Yes, I love, I think a good narrator can do so much for the reading experience. So speaking of reading, what kind of things do you enjoy reading? Good question. My reading habits have changed a little bit. You know, after The Hunger did so well, I, I was, I've just been so lucky. It kind of, you know, got me on the blurb list, I guess. So I've been getting a lot of manuscripts to consider for blurbs. So I've been reading a lot of books that m might not necessarily be the sort of book I would pick out on my own. Okay. But that's been very interesting. So I've been getting a lot of, uh, you know, horror as a genre is really sort of broadening, too. And so there's a lot of horror that's really psychological suspense. Yes. You know, yeah. So I've been doing a lot of that. Um, but my preference, I'm a pretty wide ranging reader, although I tend to lean towards more literary books than than super commercial books. Um, and that's probably just from my master's program, you know, that sort of it, I'm old. When I went, <laughs> when I went to mass, for when I went for my master's program, very much geared just towards literary writing. So okay. um, I'm just Not sort so of much like genre fiction then. Right. I, I understand some programs do teach genre more and that's great. Um, but I, I think, you know, it just helps sort of set my taste a little bit too. But I do love a good um, mystery oh, or, yes. or, or thriller. So, like, I'm a big fan of Denise Minna, the Scottish uh, crime writer. She's very, very good. I have Conviction here. Um, I have not picked it up yet, but I do own it. 
it's really good. I mean, it's a standalone and it's a little different for her. You know, I read all of her series and she's done a couple of standalones. I, I think it's really good, but it's a, di a little different for her. And then Laura Lippman, I've really been enjoying Laura Lippman a lot lately. Laura Lippman is amazing. I really, really love Lady in the Lake. Yes. Um, and I've liked a couple of her older books as well, like What the Dead Know. Um, it's been fun kind of watching her evolve over time. I remember reading some of her earlier books. And now her books are just so super masterful. I mean, Yes, they are. Evolving as a writer. Did you read Sunburn? That was one of my favorites. Yes, I did read Sunburn. I'm not as big a fan of like the whole noir feel, um, but I liked a lot of things about it. Um, I loved like all the twists that she was able to incorporate while still like telling a story that made sense. Yeah. Um, I think she's, she's very, very talented. Super masterful handling of characters and unreliable narrator. I yes. The course on that book. <laughs> well, and there's kind of a, a big thing with unreliable narrators these days. And you, so you see a wide variety of, you know, ability for people to create them in a way that feels very authentic or a way that feels gimmicky. And so I love when I find an author who can write an unreliable narrator that there's a part of me that like really can believe in, even if I'm not supposed to. Right, no, it is, a, it, that is a really hard thing to do. And more than one book I've kind of thrown across the room because, you know, it was just kind of a mess the way yes. they ended up portraying the narrative. Yes. So if listeners want to get a hold of you online, what is the best way for them to kind of keep track of, of what you're up to and um, kind of get some insights into who you are as a writer? Well, I try to keep my website up to date. I can't say I'm super good at it. That's my name, almakatsubooks.com. And if folks want to go there and sign up for my newsletter, that's probably the best way to sort of keep up to date. I try to limit it to only quarterly, so not spamming people's inboxes. And I give away a lot of stuff. I, um, you know, you go to these writers' conferences and you always get a big goodie bag full of books. Oh, yes. And I usually give away the book and the bag and everything um, <laughs> just to sort of share the excitement. Yes. Yeah. So that's probably the best way. I'm also on Instagram under my name on Twitter. I, I have a Facebook uh, business page, Almakatsu Books or Almakatsu Author, I forget. But I have to say I don't do as much on Facebook anymore just because it's really not good for business pages uh, anymore. No, I've heard that it, it's difficult for people um, to kind of make that work well for them. Yes, it, because the algorithms changed, you yeah. Are you doing any online events given the whole like COVID-19 and I'm, I'm not sure how that affected your ability to like tour for the deep. Um, well, I know that people are doing a lot of like virtual book events. Yes. I mean, the, the difference from the beginning of the outbreak to where we are now, it's almost breathtaking. Yes. <laughs> so I actually was on the road. I had just launched the tour when, um, you know, everyone started saying, oh, we've got to quarantine ourselves. It was funny because even a few days before the tour, we were doing like the last huddle with the publisher and the agent and everything on the phone. And I, I added almost as an afterthought at the end, has anyone mentioned that maybe we shouldn't do the tour? <laughs> and they, there was this silence and they were like, no, none of the bookstores had mentioned it. 
Well, I was on my second day of the tour when the when Penguin Random House made the corporate decision to, to pull all authors off the road. And so um, that's how fast that happened. And it became very apparent to me that nobody really knew what was going to come next. No, so it was surprising to see. And I have some friends who own bookstores. And of course, you know, I'm in touch with a lot of bookstores all the time. And to watch them sort of figure out a new business model so quickly, it was really breathtaking. I mean, within a week, a lot of bookstores had pivoted so that they were doing online orders and curbside delivery and um, virtual events and all this sort of stuff. And now it's gotten really sophisticated. So if folks are interested, if they go to my website, they'll still see links for at least some of the events that I've done, the virtual events. So for instance, I was able to do a live stream with Gareth Russell, who is the author of a nonfiction book that came out recently on the Titanic. And he's a historian and he's charming, utterly charming. And so we did a Q&A together. And that never would have happened before. You know, a publisher would never get us together. He lives in England. I live in the United States. But the miracle of technology allowed us to do that. I did a uh, virtual panel with a bunch of horror writers the other night for Mysterious Galaxy. So if you go to Mysterious Galaxy's Facebook page, you'll see a link to that. And that was a hoot. We had over 100 people and it was hysterical because the guys are so witty and smart. It's always fun to be around witty, smart people. It's true. It's true. (laughs) Yes. Technology is amazing. Um, my, My book bistro team is like all over the country. And we meet, um, you know, a couple times a week to do episodes and we have a, like a staff thread where we brainstorm ideas and it's like without technology, that is something that just couldn't happen. Right. Um, And so it's, it's amazing to see kind of the way books and technology combine to bring people together. And it's, it's amazing. It is. It's an interesting point in time for this to be happening. Just, you know, a lot of technological advances are making collaborations, you know, possible. Yes. Well, I want to thank you so very much for taking time to talk with me. And I definitely encourage people, if you haven't already, um, pick up The Deep and The Hunger as well. Those are the two that I have read and I love them. Um, we will definitely be keeping an eye out for your new stuff. And it was just a pleasure getting to talk with you and to know a little bit about who you are and what your process is like. Well, thank you so much. The pleasure was all mine. Now, please stay, everyone, stay safe and healthy. Yes. Okay. Now then. Let's talk about new books. So as always, this is not a comprehensive list. I go through and look at what's coming out and make some decisions based on things that are of personal interest to me or things that I've heard my fellow beachtresses talk about or just things that I think would be of general interest to the listenership of Book Bistro. If there are things that you're super excited about and there are things that I don't mention, please let me know. Our contact information is always found um, in the housekeeping at the beginning of every episode. So definitely feel free to get in touch and let me know some of what you are hoping to hear more about. So the first few books are books that you've heard us talk about before. And these are books that 
we mentioned in our most anticipated books of May episode. So first up is one of Brooke's picks, and this is Killing Mind. It's D.I. Kim Stone, book 12, by Angela Marsons, and it actually comes out on May 13th. Um, but since this is the 12th, I'm mentioning it here. We also have a book that Sarah is super excited about. This is The Bright Side of Going Dark by Kelly Harms. Um, Stacy is looking forward to this one, as am I. And Stacy mentioned I'd Give Anything by Marissa De Los Santos. And this is part of her Love Walked In series. I believe it's Love Walked In at number four. And lastly is Catherine House by Elizabeth Thomas. And this is a gothic kind of mystery set at an elite, you know, I can't tell if it's a college or a, like a prep school. It's a very elite school. And I love books set in schools, so I'm super excited about this one. So now I want to talk to you about a few books that we haven't mentioned before. Um, first up is by a new-to-me author, and his name is Daniel Kalla. The book is called The Last High, and it's about a doctor and a detective who are trying to solve some suspicious murders that they believe are related to the opioid epidemic. So again, this is the, la the last high, and it is by Daniel Kalla. Jeffrey Deaver has a new book out this week. This is The Goodbye Man, and it's Coulter Shaw, book two. And it's the sequel to The Never Game that came out last year, which is, was very, very good. Um, a little bit of a different spin than some of his other books, like his Catherine Dance series or his Lincoln Rhyme series. We're not so much dealing with like someone who works for or even with the police. Coulter Shaw is sort of a lone wolf who goes out and collects rewards um, for missing people. So this is the second book featuring this hero. And again, this is The Goodbye Man. And it is Coulter Shaw, book two by Jeffrey Deaver. Next up is This Is How I Lied by Heather Gudenkoff. And she has written a number of really, really stellar um, mysteries and thrillers. I especially loved um, her second novel, which is called These Things Hidden, and then last year's book, which was Before She Was Found. But this is, this is How I Lied, and it is the story of a woman who is trying to solve a cold case. Apparently she is a police chief, and a lot of suspicious things are happening in her town that she believes are tied to this case that happened like some number of years in the past. Um, I am looking forward to this. I'm a big fan of Gudenkoff's writing. So this, once again, is This Is How I Lied, and it's by Heather Gudenkoff. So let's talk some about young adults, because there are so many great young adult books out. So first up is By the Book. This is by Amanda Sellett, and this is basically a rom-com. It's about a teenage girl who is relying on classic literature to learn about love. And so she has all these questions about dating and relationships. And instead of asking people who actually exist, 
She combs the pages of classic literature in hopes of finding her answers. Um, so I suppose, you know, if you grew up reading things like Jane Eyre, uh, Wuthering Heights, Gone with the Wind, um, maybe you can relate. So this is by the book, and it is by Amanda Sellett. So next up is the second novel by Melissa Basherdust, and this is a standalone. It's called Girl Serpent Thorn, and it is similar to her first book, which was Girls, um, Girls Made of Snow and Glass. But this one is it's still a retelling of a fairy tale, but it's supposed to be a little bit more mystical than Snow and Glass. So. I really enjoy her kind of feminist retellings that very often include like LBGT things. Um, she focuses a lot on making these fairy tales appeal more to sort of the youth of today. So I'm pretty excited about Girl Serpent Thorn. And again, this is by Melissa Basherdost. And I'm really big on young adult fantasy, so I will include another one here. This is House of Dragons, House of Dragons, book one by Jessica Cluis. And this is described, and I love this description. So this is three dark crowns meets the breakfast club with dragons. So it's these five people who are competing in this tournament of fighting and dragon riding but of course as they start competing they learn a lot about themselves and each other and kind of the world that they're fighting for. Um, Jessica Cluis has gotten a lot of attention for some of her previous books although I have never read them not for any real reason other than that I just haven't gotten around to it but this one does appeal to me so I do want to give it a try and it is House of Dragons House of Dragons, book one, and again, it's by Jessica Cluis. And next up we have The Library of Legends by Janie Chang. And this is sort of a historical novel with a little bit of magical realism. So it's not quite fantasy, but it does have some magical elements apparently. So this is set in 1937. And it's about a group of five Chinese university students who are trying to outrun the Japanese invasion. So it's a story that takes place on the road kind of as they're fleeing for their lives. And once again, this is the Library of Legend and it is by Janie Chang. And then we have a World War II novel. So this is Daughter of the Reich by Louise Fine. And it's about a teenage girl who is drawn into the resistance movement by the boy she loves. And her kind of involvement with the resistance flies in the face of everything that she thought that she believed about Germany, about her government, and just kind of about the world at large. And so as she is learning all of these like really bad things about her country, she's also trying to like reevaluate her family and how this set of circumstances like shapes her and, and who she wants to become. So this is Daughter of the Reich and it is by Louise Fine. And last up for me today is Queen of the Unwanted. 
This is The Women's War, book two, by Jenna Glass. And it is the sequel to um, The Women's War that came out either in 2018 or 2019, I think 2018. And it is another kind of feminist dystopian novel. So basically the premise is pretty simple. It's that women can do magic and because they can do magic, they are in power in ways that they aren't kind of in the real world. And so they now have control over their own bodies. And so men are no longer making their decisions, but this does not go quite as smoothly as they would have liked. So apparently Queen of the Unwanted picks up where book one leaves off. So if you've read it and if you notice that it kind of ended on a cliffhanger, here is more of that story. So again, it's Queen of the Unwanted, The Women's War, book two, and it's by Jenna Glass. So that is all I have for you today. I hope you enjoyed the Almakatsu interview and I hope that you found some fantastic things to read this week. As always, I love to know what you're reading and loving, so please feel free to get in touch. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody.